Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Christopher Russell, host of today's episode with Dr. Claudia Louise. Dr. Louise is the first place winner of the 2006 Phyllis W. Meadow Award for Excellence in Psychoanalytic Writing, published in the journal Modern Psychoanalysis, and a first place winner of the 2008 Reader's Digest Best Writers Website Award. And her essay, Katrina Learns to Breathe, is nominated this year for a Knapp Gradiva Award. Dr. Louise is on the faculty of the Academy for Clinical and Applied Psychoanalysis in Livingston, New Jersey, and has a private practice in New York City and Terrytown, New York. She was last on the program in 2014 with her book, Where's My Sanity? Stories That Help and returns today to discuss her latest book, The Making of a Psychoanalyst, Studies in Emotional Education, published 2018 by Rutledge. Dr. Louise, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Christopher. So we we start our interviews um, with the question, (laughs) what motivated you, as far as we know our motivations, what motivated you to write the book? Several things. Uh, One was money, because I thought that psychoanalysis is so incredible that if I can only find a way to talk about it to appeal to the masses, I'll be rich. Now, why I wanted to be rich is because this was many years ago, a puzzle to me now, but I have to analyze it further. So it was having, it was a creative project that had some impetus to, to reach some station in life I hadn't reached yet. And, um, it was really a, a tremendously driven project from some inner place to try to make what is typically pretty unaccessible to, to regular people somehow accessible. And that is, by the way, still a huge goal of mine and I think should be for all of us. What what makes us or what makes psychoanalysis so unaccessible? I think one of the problems is that each of us has these gigantic aha moments that change our lives that mean nothing to another person. For example, I had a patient who realized after about 12 years of analysis that her entire life revolved around the feeling of disappointment and that she could find disappointment anywhere and everywhere. It was just her constant companion. And when she had this revelation about her unconscious, the whole world changed because then she could connect and connect to other feelings and not have to interpret everything according to the rules of disappointment. So this was a game changer for her. And if I said to the masses, you know, Elizabeth realized in her analysis 
how much she was always disappointed in things. Well, that's a huge so what. <laughs> so how do you explain to people what an enormous aha experience for one person is without telling the entire story of that person's life first. It's hard to do. And then to add insult to injury, there's no way that we can take Elizabeth's experience and create prediction for another case or create um, replicability. So without replicability and without prediction, science turns their nose up to us and next thing you know we're an underground movement i think freud has a line somewhere where he says you know we're in the unfortunate position of being in the in the middle between medicine and philosophy but the idea of, of having that aha which these these moments are are so powerful when we realize them and and you write in the book about your decision to train was I wanted modern psychoanalyst training. You knew that you wanted this specific discipline. You weren't going to, you know, go for a different degree or philosophy degree. You knew you wanted this. How did that come about? It came about very personally because I had reached a point at the tender young age of 16 where I was toying with the idea of not living. And it frightened me. So my parents had a connection uh, with someone called Hyman Spotnitz, who turned out to be the father of modern psychoanalysis. And he was terribly expensive. I could only afford to go once a month. But he did something with me, which he then wrote about works for one of two kinds of adolescents, which is that he invited me to study with him. And that invitation gave me a reason to live. And from that moment on, that reason to live uh, became my avocation. And in, you talk about your, your parents knowing Hyman Spotnitz. There's a wonderful part at the beginning of the book where in the writing of the book, you had a, a whole year uh, just talking theory with your mom. Yes, that was a wonderful year because uh, I had spent all the preceding years of my life trying not to listen to her. So it was very gratifying for both of us. She's a tremendous reader, which I never was. I didn't have the concentration for it, and I always envied her. And when I could put that aside and just listen to her and learn from her and get that oral tradition, it was so uh, fulfilling for both of us. It was, uh, and it culminated in these terrific essays. So my mother is uh, always leads me to great things. <laughs> and so, speaking of the, the the essays, and then I guess we'll get into the book. So you have the year talking theory with your you know, with your mom. Um, Talk a little bit about the structure of this book, because this is not a book where you read a review of the literature and theory and then read a case to, in a sense, prove the point. You chose a whole different structure. There's no literature review. 
um, as a glossary. Talk a little bit about how that came about. One of the problems that I had uh, was that I couldn't focus. I had an anxiety disorder. I had an impulse disorder. And uh, because the training institute where I trained could uh, be interested in people with all kinds of disorders, I fit in very nicely there. But only until I started writing the final paper did I have to struggle with reading. Before then, I would skim read an article, and then I would go to class, and I would learn from other people what was in that article. So sometimes I would have to take a class three, four times over. There were several classes by the time I graduated, 17 years after the training, where I had taken many of the classes over and over. So that's how I learned how to uh, absorb the theory, and it all happened within the context of the classroom group. So everything had context and meaning. Everything had a story for me. And if it didn't, it made no sense to me. I look at a page, and I start reading theory, and I cannot fundamentally understand it until I'm presented with a case, because then I can feel it. So whatever's missing in my higher cortex gets uh, activated through my lower brain, and then it makes sense to me. And I thought, well, gee, maybe other people are like this. So I wouldn't be able to tell you well, how I learned what I know, because I don't have the reference works on my bookshelf. So I wouldn't be able to tell you this is Spotnitzian, uh, this is sort of Melanie Kleinish. It's all become completely integrated into who I am and how I work as, as an analyst. So the only kind of book I could write was a book about people in treatment and their aha moments. And then my mother could help me to sort through uh, how I had integrated theory and clinical method and be able to describe uh, to other people how theories of the mind inform treatment because we're fascinated to understand more about the patient when we have these theories of the mind, conflict theory, drive theory, object relations theory. We have so many different ways of thinking about the patient and what they're presenting. And then, of course, the methods joining, uh, following the contact, working with pre-analytic patients, emotional communication. All of this is really described best through uh, stories that evoke a feeling. So I hope that people can connect to the ideas. When we read the, the stories in the book, we're presented with the case, we meet the patient right away, all of the emotional demands, and, and we're meeting you, meeting them. So it is, I mean, I really love the subtitle, Studies in Emotional Education. Um, and you mentioned that where you train sort of allowed and, and welcomed that. And you have a, a, a lovely chapter um, about sort of the core of the training called Searching for Anita, um, what was that like? What was the, the field work like? 
you read my mind because as you were talking, I, I thought about my failed field work. The training is superb at the Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis uh, because they're not afraid to fail people. And I had done what I thought was a spiffy presentation of the schizophrenic. I had gone loyally and devotedly for two years to this locked chronic ward. It was horrifying to me to be there. I hated every second of it, and I got away as quickly as I could. And then to fail after this wonderful presentation where I talked about her symptoms, how uh, how I felt around her, there was history, there was ideology of schizophrenia. I mean, it was an incredible presentation, and I failed. And the reason that I failed is that I had not connected to this patient at all. <laughs> I had not understood anything about her resistances. And uh, all I wrote about her resistances is she kept walking away from me. And all I wrote about transference is I can't stand to be near her for very long. And apparently that wasn't thorough enough. And by failing and having to go back, which, by the way, I didn't go back immediately. I started applying to business school. That's how difficult it is to learn how to work with transference and resistance and to stay with your own feelings in, in the room. I didn't think I could do it. I didn't get into business school. And so I was forced to go back to this mental hospital in this chronic ward and figure out why it was so hard to sit with Anita. And that's how I learned about analysis. I learned how to use my own emotions to gauge whether she was going to stay or walk away by how intense our conversation was emotionally. Was it object-oriented or was it ego-oriented? The more neutral it was, the more she would stay with me. So I learned how to follow her. And by the end of that story, we sat for 45 minutes in a place where only the patients went. And um, I graduated with honors. You mentioned a, a moment ago with this that um, in in the training, you mentioned some techniques. One, I think, that is... I, uh, I, specific to, to modern psychoanalysis, the idea of following the contact for the, for the listeners. And uh, what, is that, what is that about? What is that technique? The, when you follow the contact, you really meet the patient where they're at. You're never trying to move the patient. So if the patient wants to destroy their marriage, you are interested in how to help them do that if they want to save the marriage. If the patient doesn't want to go deeper, you don't probe. If the patient wants to chit-chat, you chit-chat. If the patient wants to fall down on the floor in a heaving panic attack, you meet the patient in that space. So wherever the patient is, you are comfortable being in that space with the patient so the patient isn't alone. And uh, by not being alone and, and feeling the enjoyment of your company as a soulmate and a best friend and someone that's that comfortable, you can start to ask more questions and you can go in deeper and then you really learn the patient's language. 
So if you want to learn the patient's language and enter into their mind, you have to follow them into it. And that, for me, is how you follow the contact. Well, when you were when you were talking about that, it it uh, prompted me to remember the um, in in one of the endorsements for the the book uh, where uh, Dr. Jane Goldberg says, you know, no wish for anything at all to happen in the treatment other than finding ways of being together, and that's what that sounded like. Yeah, it was really really beautiful. Um, throughout the book, you um, use a, a phrase which I really loved for the, the sort of cleanness of it, to prepare the patient's mind for self-discovery. Oh, you're, the patient's their own self-discovery. When you follow the contact and the patient gets increasingly comfortable with you, a number of things happen to their entire physiology. One is, from a drive theory standpoint, uh, they're more and more able to accept their feelings and talk about the most challenging feelings, grief, disappointment, rage, murderousness, words that for many people are like worse than curse words. And they can start to go there. And that, of course, liberates energy because they don't have to defend against feelings. So when you're not defending, there's less intrapsychic conflict and there's uh, more, better choices are made and you have more, more energy and more serotonin. You, you're not uh, hating yourself as much, attacking yourself as much, all of which have very bad effects on the mind and body. The second thing that happens is that you develop some object relations. You have a connection with someone. And that is also creates tremendous change and makes it possible to uh, go deeper and deeper and even start to explore trauma that's in the body or genetic emotional disturbance can get uh, experienced and not defended against. So as you progress entering into the patient's consciousness because you're following them there and meeting them comfortably in the, in the space where they are and asking some questions that are you know will be tolerable because you understand um, the patient's capacity for intensity or for frustration and connection. So you're constantly growing and growing in the ability to say more and more and more. And then, of course, the patient starts really speaking the unconscious and having these tremendous ahas. And it takes a very long time because you can't do this work successfully if you're strangers. So it's, it's so different from cognitive therapy where you go in and you talk about very, very private things and you let the person in very, very deeply. But in psychoanalysis, when you're following the patient into their consciousness, you have very strong feelings for each other. 
And then there are enactments. You forget a session or there are payment problems or you said something and it created a reaction and you don't know why you said it or you're working with a family member and there was a betrayal. The enactments start to happen as if you were in each other's real life having problems. And that's when uh, all that emotion can get analyzed, all of those dynamics, all that conflict, all the defenses come up. And it becomes very, very rich work. But it does take a while to get that close to someone. That, I would say, is the process of it. Yeah, you bring up uh, enactments um, uh, in the book. It's one of the things that you cover. Um, and you, you tell a great story you share with us um, about being brought a muffin. I think that was in a talk I gave at CMPS that you're that you're remembering, and um, that was a story about a man who would bring me soups, and he brought me the most unbelievably tasty soups when he started treatment, and at some point. After a few years, it wasn't a lot of soups, but a couple of times a year when he made a big batch, he would bring me a huge container of a frozen soup. So when all was said and done, I probably had in the career of our analysis about six tubs of soup. And the last two tubs were horrible. They were just disgusting. So this was, uh, I don't think an enactment as much as it was symbolic communication. I think of an enactment when something happens between the patient and the analyst that is unconscious on both their parts. For example, and I haven't written about this anywhere, but this has recently happened. I had a new patient and she wanted parenting advice. So I met her where she was, and for about six years, we worked on her daughter, making this communication and that communication, and what could she do better? And the daughter just did incredibly well and started to make friends and did well in school, and I thought everything was hunky-dory, just going beautifully. And then the patient started to have trouble talking and didn't want to come to the sessions, and it was a massive resistance. I couldn't get underneath it. And then I had the idea that something had gone wrong with uh, the advice-giving treatment. So I asked her, have I been shaming you? And she really broke open and started crying. And it turned out that she was afraid to tell me because I'd given her such good advice and the daughter did so well. She was afraid to tell me that she had developed a hatred towards me. (laughs) Because I made her feel inadequate and incompetent and that she was a bad mother. How did that happen? So then we spent some time figuring out how that that had happened. And the ahas, now, by the way, after six years of analyzing her daughter, she was finally in analysis. I had tried a few times to ask her to talk about herself, by the way. Can we, uh, is it okay that we're just always talking about your daughter? And she had never uh, wanted to talk about herself because there wasn't anything meaningful to review. So that, to me, is a terrific example of how 
she and I colluded together to create in the relationship a resistance to being together with her feelings where I ended up shaming her and then she ended up feeling that she didn't want to have a relationship with me. And in asking her, you know, have I been been shaming you? And you talk about this um, in the book. What uh, in in following the contact, but then the idea of um, what you call an object-oriented question. What is that about? Well, particularly traumatized patients who've been abused um, sexually or or violently or who don't have words for their experience, they're very concrete thinkers. It is so frightening to get on the couch and start talking about your inner life. It's impossible. And when these patients come in, they are so tense and they're and so uncomfortable. And so basically you have to keep it light. You have to talk about their friends and their family and where they grew up. And as you get more personal, you can think about asking less neutral questions, maybe about things they like. They like to eat or, they, or they've enjoyed until you get to the full ego-oriented questions, which are in the realm of how do you feel. It, it's very threatening to ask someone how they're feeling who is trying not to feel anything or who's trying not to feel whatever it is they're there to see you about. So you you can't get there till, till there's a lot of safety, a lot of comfort, a lot of strength, a lot of freed up libidinal energy from slowly easing in. You know how some people just dive into the cold water and other people just painfully inch their way in? Yes. So I th- I think of the I think of the object oriented question that way. You're just running your fingers along the water. There was another uh, phrase which I think um, might have been yours: uh, the idea of analytic transparency. Yes, that's, that is a term. I think that's how I won the Meadow Award. And analytic transparency, I think, is what Freud was trying to achieve with analytic neutrality. The problem with neutrality, I've discovered, is that it's no longer neutral. So if you decide to be neutral with a patient, they look at you and they say, oh, but here I'm with a Freudian. You're no longer following their contact. You're in your own brand, your own persona. So it's almost a joke now, the objective, you know, how do you feel about that? It's almost like you can computerize it. So when I thought about how to be with a patient so that they don't see you, so they don't experience you, so that they're enjoying resonating with an energy who's on their level, I came up with transparency. So the patient can see right through you to themselves. 
you don't want to present an, an obstacle that interferes with the patient working on talking more, feeling stronger, opening up more, playing in the fields of the mind. And is the analytic transparency, this seeing through you to themselves, is that related to or in, in service of uh, the, the narcissistic transference? Well, when you're working with a severe disorder or a person who's severely regressed, it really is important to uh, become transparent so that you can um, get to that deeper stuff and start to look at it and feel it and navigate it and put words to it. So the narcissistic transference, when the patient experiences you the way this patient did as the shaming mother, she had wanted a mother. She only knew a shaming mother. That's what I became for her. So when we were able to explore that projection and why she needed me to be that person, how could I have neglected her, how did she become invisible, all, all of that started to make sense when you think about it in terms of everything you're saying, Christopher, which is to say following the contact, becoming uh, transparent uh, to the patient so that you're not standing in their way of emerging in the treatment, and then finally getting to the core narcissism that prevents the patient from being able to connect to the world without defenses or with reduced defenses or an understanding of their unconscious defenses so they have more choices. And it all works together for the modern analyst to follow the patient's contact diagnose the degree of narcissism, study the enactments, continue helping the patient say more and more. They slowly get a stronger ego. They have more libidinal energy available. They continue to unfold. And then you can both be in a place of horrific rage, murderous rage, or total destructiveness, a place where there's barely any language, a very disturbed and painful place, you will arrive there together eventually if the um, patient can be helped to, to keep seeing themselves. And all of this, though, you, you write in different ways, and I think we're talking about the a deep respect for the patient's defenses. Oh, yes. I mean, uh, once you work with what is defended against, you also really respect the defenses. <laughs> because once you get in there with the core psychosis or the feelings that are being defended against, and these feelings often have have no words. I'm 
having a number of patients flash across my mind who've had these sort of mini breakdowns when feelings really uh, come through that are absolutely unbearable. So you learn to respect the defenses because you start to understand how painful and disturbing what is being defended against can be. And I think there's uh, um, one of the chapters is really lovely because the defenses that get, in a sense, uh, looked at are yours. You go in for supervision, uh, in a sense, expecting to to be agreed with, and, and you're not. What happened there? Well, it, it this was a very difficult case. This woman came in who was, at that point in my life, much more successful than I was. She was a workshop leader. She made a lot of money. She had a beautiful wardrobe. And here she was coming to me because she had heard through the grapevine that I did deeper work. And she felt there was something in her way. So she came in with a lot of self-help jargon. And she was saying uh, things that, you know, to me sounded really shallow. Like we have to do this work um together for the, I can't even remember the jargon now, but when I went into supervision, my supervisor could understand the jargon, could understand what was getting uh, expressed. Something like, oh, I'm working with a couple and they can't see uh, through to each other's soul or Boy, I wrote that chapter a long time ago. I can't even remember the case. And my supervisor could feel that this person really wanted treatment and wasn't just coming in. This was the language she had adopted. She was trying to say something. So um, I think it's an incredible honor the day that your supervisor uh, feels that you are strong enough to hear reality. And that you can manage an interpretation. And I had been studying for a long time. So I knew when my supervisor said to me, you're missing something here and you're suffering from a counter-transference resistance. I could take that in and do an attitude adjustment. And it was just a, such a, a good story to tell for the process of working on your counter-transference resistance. Because a lot of times patients leave you, you feel like you've done everything right. You can't understand why they've left. And uh, often it's because they didn't give you a chance. They, They couldn't talk long enough. They just didn't like meeting up with themselves in the room there. But other times I'm at a point where I can tell that something in me is in the way. I'm not comfortable. If I'm not comfortable with a patient, then I know something in me is in the way. Because at this point, I'm so comfortable with uh, a lot of emotions, in, in particularly in other people, that if I'm not comfortable, it's definitely something is going on with me. And I knew it even at, the, at that time that I had to go and get supervision. 
And sometimes your supervisor, you can't get to it. You can't get to the resistance. At that point, I was ready to know that uh, my envy and my greed and my desire to um, kill people that gave me a bad feeling <laughs> was there. I could know all that. And then I could start to connect to what that patient was trying to say through the jargon, and it became a very riveting case. Well, I think that that speaks to uh, um, one of the things that you write in the book, uh, which I think is very helpful um, for clinicians, is um, you say, don't look for strategies, look for what might be required of you as a practitioner. Yes, it's a very different model. Because if you're working on strategies, um, like I did with this patient, we strategized for six years how to help her daughter. But we we really couldn't get to any of, of the stuff until, of course, she started resisting, and then we had our golden moment. So strategizing a, a case is when we try to make things better and we advise the patient on what to do. And it happens all the time because patients sometimes have problems and not questions. Sometimes they just need to understand how to sort through the feelings enough to know whether they're acting badly or someone's going to get hurt. They can't see their way through it and you have to protect them if you can see the feelings. But I think what I meant by that comment is that ultimately what we really want our patients to do is understand, um, uh, connect back to the feelings that they have to defend against because then they're free. And in that understanding, um, you know, with this, the, the emotional education of this book, um, it's not um, necessarily through the analyst providing insight. Well, now you've gotten to the really the heart of uh, modern analysis, which is emotional communication, which is probably the single most exciting and and beautiful thing that can happen in the analysis when what you say is not geared to give the patient information about themselves. What you're saying is geared to uh, helping them move on deeper to their next thought. So a communication, for example, that I made to this patient who we had enacted shame with, at that moment in the treatment, I could say to her, uh, why would I want to shame you? Now, this is both a question, but it's also communicating to the patient that I, that I really don't. I said to her, how did, I, how did I fall into that trap? She said, you couldn't see me. So by... Being able to be back in a place where she had a bad uh, person with her who couldn't see her 
and who she was invisible to and who was abusive to her, making her feel like she should just fall off the face of the earth. If I had said to her two years prior, you are repeating uh, getting shamed, it would have hit the top part of her mind, but we wouldn't have had a chance to be in that enactment together. And what emotional communication does is it, uh, it, it uh, helps the patient to open up to more and more feeling rather than engage the higher cortex, which really has very, very little effect on the amygdala experience, which is where we repeat and repeat. That is a habit of the brain. And these synaptic uh, wires that have fired together, that, however you, whatever, however the saying is, uh, that make up the repetition compulsion, just don't respond to logic and to reason. You can know everything about yourself and it just won't help. Whereas if you have a cathartic experience through an emotional communication that uh, shows the mind that there's a different way to feel, a different way to be in the world, and that you have patterned yourself to repeat something that may be a delusion. It may be an illusion of your own. So you, you discover that through the relationship with emotional communications that are geared to always helping the patient open up to understand themselves, to so you ask a lot of questions uh, and you help the patient feel comfortable in whatever moment they're in. Interpretation, in fact, may be an enactment in and of itself now that I think about it, Christopher. I don't know how you feel about it. Well, what, what came to mind is uh, Dr. Meadow who says, uh, I know I want to interpret every time a patient arouses too much feeling in me. Yes. So, yeah, um, in a sense, you want to take the patient away from the feeling. Yes. Yeah. It's a I resistance. How, yeah, it's the analyst resistance. I wonder how, because uh, I really loved, I really smiled. How do uh, parents react when you just say, here's my prescription, be friendly towards your kids? <laughs> I am friendly. <laughs> the problem well, is how blind that, we are to ourselves. You complex. Well, that's an interpretation, too. You may not be being friendly, so it doesn't really work. I forget the context of that you know, it's very hard to be friendly to angry kids. Parents really have trouble seeing, you know, kids can't talk. They can't, they don't have insights into themselves. They just feel bad. So then they walk around feeling bad and the parent feels that's unacceptable. It's, it's rude and it's, it's nasty. It's negative. It's unpleasant. It's bad behavior. But really, the child is trying to say something. They just don't have words for it. And when parents can be friendly, in light of all that uh, negativity, it's a very powerful emotional communication. Wildly difficult. 
But this is another way that, you know, it, this has everything to do with what you were saying about the meta quote, because we invite regression. We want to get to those dark, difficult places. That's where the healing happens. That's where the words are found for experience that has no words. And when we're friendly to our children who may have a disturbance of some kind, either they've inherited it or something went wrong that we can't fully understand, that their needs weren't met or that they uh, couldn't um, enjoy what was being offered. So again, when you open yourself up to your child and you can uh, start to feel their pain, I think for some parents, actually, feeling their child's pain is harder, more difficult and more painful than feeling their own. Yeah, very much so. And I think that, um, you know, in, in the book, I think that comes from a chapter where, you know, a, a couple comes in um, and there's so much pressure on you. We're sort of with you there. There's so much pressure to solve and to fix. Um, immediately, I sort of read the book going, oh, my gosh, what's she going to do? What's she going to say? And and the the suggestion to be friendly, you know, towards the kids, which um, seemed to take the couple, you know, by surprise. But they they tried it. They they were they were willing to to give it a try. You know, one of the ways that people bypass any illness or disturbance is by becoming successful. So parents really want their children to be successful. And it's hard for them to play the chess game of learning how to make emotional communications that will get them there actually much faster and much more efficiently. So it's uh, everybody in the family has to open up. That's why I love working with the whole family, because it's a unit. You get to see how the defenses all work together how people are experiencing each other. And then you can help parents understand how, how they are being experienced where the child doesn't have language for it. Most parents find that very helpful. Some analysts have treated their own families. Have you heard about that? Yeah, uh, Evelyn Liegner, I think, is the one that I'm most she was familiar with. Yes. Fascinating. Yeah. So the the first chapter, um, Katrina learns to breathe. You said that's been nominated for a Gradiva Award. Um, yes. What is that that story about? Katrina um, ha was a perfectionist, and her defense was to do as much as she could, as well as she could. And she was starting to lose her balance uh, because she had three kids and a demanding job and a bigwig husband who couldn't help her and a family who just told her, slow down, slow down, stop doing so much, which she experienced as um, mean and that they just wanted to put her down. So she was stuck between a rock and a hard place because she wanted to be more and more perfect and achieve everything and prove her family wrong. But on the other hand, it was killing her. 
and she could not find balance. She just could not figure out how to work less or get more help. She just wanted to do everything and she couldn't. So uh, because we follow the contact, we had to be with the patient in the space that, that they are in. So I just helped her to be stronger and better. I made the emotional communications like take your vitamins and uh, get massages, just be stronger. And little by little, as she had an ally in me, she started to understand um, why she had to work so hard to be perfect why she didn't want anyone to put her down. And the more she spoke, the less, of course, she needed to maintain the defense. And so the story is really about how knowing our unconscious resolves uh, real, so to speak, real problems. And ultimately, the solution, which was stop working so hard and try to chill out a little bit, she came to it on her own. And the way I use the story was to explain how we have to keep theories in our mind to treat someone who is this frustratingly irrational. I mean, you just want to tell this person to come on, have a little common sense. And you can't because they're under the grips of irrational forces. They can't see anybody or they can, and they can't see reality. That's the nature of narcissism. So I was able to include theories of how theories of the mind, understanding them serves as a foundation to know what's happening in the patient and get fascinated, and then how clinical interventions work. So it's the first chapter of the book because it gives us sort of an overview. And then smaller chapters focus on specific innovations to psychoanalysis in the past 50 years, specific interventions, some comments on how repression works, what it, what that's about. It's not about finding these memories that are long lost, but it's about reconnecting to parts of ourselves that are too painful to remember. So that first chapter kind of lays the groundwork and introduces the reader to why analysis is different from therapy. And because so many people are irrational and don't respond to self-help and, and common sense, I thought it would resonate, resonate well. What's interesting about that chapter is that I also included my own counter-transference to this woman, which was that I thought she was much more put together than I was. And um, I was trying to also include counter-transference in that first introductory chapter, and I've gotten a tremendous, huge amount of criticism for why I talked about myself. And people said, you really brought the book down, because not only are you not doing a literature review and a, a whole ideology of how psychoanalysis has gotten formed, but you're also now talking about yourself. So it's like two no-nos in one for a psychoanalytic textbook and not to be taken seriously by the scientific community. So I'm, I'm really hoping to market the book and that it'll be a big success so I can show people that it's okay 
uh, to be real. <laughs> to be to be transparent. Um, yeah, the uh, I've heard this before. The almost the terror of writing about countertransference. I'm thinking about an article someone wrote ten years ago now that talked about countertransference and, and got rejected from you know whatever journal. Absolutely. And this is, for me, the line between what's personal and private has really, really shifted because we have to use ourselves as clinical evidence. We, we have to bring ourselves into the equation. That's what's real. So once you leave your ego at the door and you forget about shame and all that, then you can talk freely. And truthfully, and for me personally, it really feels good. Good. Um, what are you working on now? Well, the making of a psychoanalyst for me in many ways was like psychoanalysis light, L-I-T-E, in that it was an, an overview. But it really didn't touch on um, hate, psychosis regression, um, uh, addictive disorder, some of the experiences that uh, people have, breakdowns, and I really wanted to bring some of the more intense and difficult concepts, the concept of the uh, toxic interjects, for example, what that looks like, uh, marriages that are where the negative union uh, goes on for decades, where there's a tremendous amount of projection and need to ward off negative feelings. So I really want to get into some of the heavier stuff and write about it with some uh, theory and um, clinical methodology. I'm starting to collect, you know, I have a huge collection of index cards, which is how I developed the first card. And I'm almost, I think I may be there now for this more intense book. I'm very excited about it. Yeah. Would you follow the same pattern? Would you then say, okay, mom, let's, let's talk about this. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, I'm, I'm, thrilled with the book thrilled that you came back to to talk to us i think it definitely you know accomplishes what you set out to it's accessible um three different um parts of the book really do you know so introduce readers uh, clinicians and non-clinicians in into into the work and it's uh, just terrific so thanks for joining us thank you so much for your thoughtful creating space for my thoughts and I loved your questions. Very helpful to me. Thank you.